So as Pastor Josh said, I'm, I'm Cody Stevens, uh, 36 years old. I am from a small town in Texas, Paris, Texas. We do have an Eiffel Tower, so uh, with a cowboy hat on top. Um, <laughs> so uh, my parents were divorced when I was very young. Um, I have a wonderful mother uh, who raised me. She did the best that she could, and as a single parent, I lived with her most of the time, and I spent weekends with my grandparents. You know, they took me to church. I'm very close with them. Um, several years later, my mom remarried, uh, and though he seemed great at first, uh, time would tell a different story. He became very physically, verbally, and emotionally abusive. Uh, in many cases, my mother and I feared for our own lives. We just couldn't see a way out. So as a result, I, as a kid, I, I loved uh, pretending to be other people. Uh, I was a TJ Hooker fan, Batman, you know, put on my little towel, jump off the couch, uh, the many characters of Jim Carrey. Uh, I was always wanting to entertain people around me. I also loved to sing. Uh, this, this sort of behavior allowed me to escape the reality of the things that were going on around me and inside me. Uh, this carried on into my teenage years and throughout high school. I, I, I desperately wanted to be accepted. Um, I struggled to find my identity. Uh, I became involved in theater my junior year of high school. I ended up uh, receiving a college scholarship for theater arts, and it was there that the course of my life would change. I was still struggling to find myself, to fit in, and I was introduced to drugs. Um, using really was a win-win for me because it provided a way for me to escape the issues inside myself, and I, I you know, I really felt like I was more accepted. Uh, I thought, man, this is, I want to feel like this forever. Th this is it. And at first, I was able to maintain using on the weekends, and things were fun and innocent, um, but as time went on, though, I found myself not going to class, missing rehearsals, and eventually, I dropped out of college altogether. Before I knew it, uh, my life had become completely unmanageable. Um, my drug use became my only pursuit. I was finding myself in trouble with the law, and I was in desperate need of help. So, at the age of 18, I entered my first rehab. Little did I know at the time, but this would become the pattern of my life for many, many years to come. I was in and out of jails and rehabs, and eventually I caught felony drug charges. I would reach out for help. I would want to change, and I would even do good for a little while, but it was only a matter of time before I would find myself right back in full-blown addiction, worse than the time before. This back-and-forth addiction, you know, and white-knuckling sobriety, um, it went on for many, many years. I became involved in using, making, and selling drugs I said that I would never touch. Compromise after compromise, constantly pushing the limits to try to chase fulfillment in this world. Years later, I ended up finding out I was going to have a child. Though I wasn't really ready to be a father by any means, I thought, you know what? This could be it. This could be the thing that is going to turn my life around. So I stopped using. I stopped going out. But before long, fear, doubt, and anxiety crept in. So as a result, turned back to the only thing I knew. I started using again. I ran from my responsibilities. My addiction became so out of control, and I was so self-consumed that I, have, I wasn't even there for the birth of my daughter. I was allowed to see my little girl after she came home from the hospital. I held her one time, and then I went back to my life of self-consumed addiction. A couple of months later, my daughter passed away. My life spiraled into a darkness that I have never experienced before. I hated myself. I blamed myself for her death. I was slowly killing myself with my drug use. Drugs coupled with my guilt and shame led me to having paranoia, hallucinations. 
I desperately, desperately needed help again. So I reached out to a family member, and I ended up checking myself into the Texas Dream Center. After staying in the program for six months, I left prematurely to pursue my CDL, convinced that what I really needed was a career. This will be the thing that would turn everything around. Over time, though, I was wrong. My drug use became the focus of my life again, and though I had moments of clarity and sobriety, my life was a wreck. My relationship with my family was destroyed. I couldn't hold down a job. I would find myself trying to fill the void in my life with anything I could get my hands on. Sex, drugs, possessions, friends, all of them left me feeling empty and alone. Then I received word that my grandfather was in the hospital and he wasn't doing well. Two weeks later, he passed, who I was very close with. Weeks later, I woke up to found a close friend of mine dead in the bed next to me. She died from an overdose. So I'd lost my grandfather. I lost my friend. Death was all around me. My vehicle was impounded. I was kicked out of the places I was staying. There were no more open doors of family members who were tired of being lied to and hurt. There were no more friends' couches left to crash on because even they knew how out of control my drug use was. And I found myself alone and hopeless on the streets in Dallas, Texas. I had no idea where I was going. I was desperate. I was afraid. I was near death. So I cried out to God. I begged him to forgive me. I pleaded with him to help me. I remembered a man that I had met at the Texas Dream Center named Chris Taylor. And I reached out to him wondering if he was still connected with that program in any way. And he told me about his good friend, Pastor Joshua West, and a place he thought was just what I needed. Romans 8:28 says, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I arrived at Sunrise Ranch on June 20th, 2019, broken, exhausted, emaciated. All that was left of my life was in a grocery bag. Matthew 11:28 says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. My time at Sunrise was not easy. It's still not easy. But for the first time in my life, I know who I am because I know whose I am. I am a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Matthew 16.24-25 through 25 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. I have accepted the call to take up my cross, crucify my old self, and be raised to life in Christ. I thank God for my brokenness because it makes the wholeness of being in Christ so much more beautiful. I understand the love and mercy of God in a way I never have before, but I have counted the cost of following him. I thank God for my past because I know he can and he already is using it for his glory. I completed my 13-month program as a student on July 10th, 2020. I decided to stay with Sunrise. I completed an internship, and as Josh said, I'm now the intake coordinator for our program. And I just want to say this to close. There is hope. If you know someone struggling, reach out to us. I will be at the, the Restoration Art table, um, so stop by after the service. I'll hand you one of my cards. We'll, we'll talk. We'll pray. And uh, I just thank you guys for letting me share. Love y'all.
All right. Thank you, Cody and Pastor Josh. What a blessing it is to be with you today. And um, it's always a joy to travel and to, to share what Jesus has done in our lives. We are a program of men who have been rescued. It's that simple. Rescued by the Savior. And when you look at our success at Teen Challenge, at Sunrise especially, um, we see men that have been raised up in the radical transformations that happen. Somebody like Cody, who is now serving in full-time ministry, who's in school of ministry, um, in the process of being credentialed in ministry. Out of the 22 staff members that we have, 20 of them are graduates. 20 are graduates. And that's just to say the ones that are at our center. What God has been doing through Sunrise for so many years is raising up ministers, um, John Flores is a pastor just right down the street from our campus who was raised up at our facility. Randall Wilbur is one of our graduates who is now in Billings, Montana, who planted the first Teen Challenge in Billings, Montana. This is the radical transformation that happens, the people who were takers, people who you would lock the door when they came by, have been radically transformed to ministers of the gospel, to missionaries, to pastors, Wesley Burns is one of our graduates who is on his way to Japan to serve two years as a missionary to Japan. What we've seen is that when God transforms, he's not just tweaking a few things. He's killing an entire thing and resurrecting a new thing. And that drastic transformation that we see from, from the man that comes in to the man that leaves is, is dumbfounding to me. As long as I've been doing it for the 15, almost 15 years now that I've been at Sunrise, it always surprises me to see a man raised up from the ash heap because the world gives them no chance at success. Three to 6% success rates. And that's for those who seek treatment. The reality is 80 plus percent of people don't even seek treatment in our world. They live in habitual addiction and they do not think there is any way out. But there is a way out. We've been there and we can show these men the way out through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the transformative power of the Lord. Well, I'm gonna be reading to you from Mark today. Mark chapter 12, verse one through 12 is the text. But before we start reading that, I want to um, surmise um, chapter 11, verse 27 through the end of chapter 11 so that we know what we're getting into here. But first of all, you need to understand what's just happened. So Jesus has entered Jerusalem riding a donkey, fulfilling the prophecies in the Old Testament, approaching the Eastern Gate. People are saying, Hosanna in the highest. Lord, save us. They're quoting Psalms 118 and, 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 and proclaiming his, him as the messianic fulfillment of the son of David. And they're laying down palm branches and they're celebrating to his arrival. Excited that he is there. And the religious authorities say, rebuke your disciples, Jesus. Rebuke these people. How is it that you're receiving this praise? What are you doing? And who do you think you are? Well, if that wasn't enough, Jesus then goes into the temple and he wrecks shop. He throws over stone tables that crumble and break on the ground. Coins are scattered about and, and, and 
the birds are flying away of sacrifice and the lambs are scurrying and, and are, are worried, I'm sure. And this, this moment where Jesus cleanses the temple and then calls them a den of robbers, quoting Jeremiah. As Jeremiah stood against the temple in his day, so Jesus was standing against the temple in his day. And in order to understand that, you need to understand the corruption that was in the temple. This is not just something we understand in the scriptures. It's something we understand in extra biblical literature. Josephus would tell us that the high priesthood was so corrupt that they would go to the threshing floor of individuals and take slaves utterly depraved and rob them of the tithe. Trev, you should try that sometime if, uh, if, if tithe is low. Just kick down the door and demand the tithe. It's what they did. Can you imagine? The, the corruption, they were, they were practicing extortion. The Dead Sea community, the Essenes, if you read the, the community scroll, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they will show you that they had rejected the temple. That's why they're outside of Jerusalem at the Dead Sea region. John the Baptist has rejected the temple. His father, Zacharias, is a priest. Matter of fact, John the Baptist's birth was foretold in the holy place as Zacharias offers incense to the Lord. Jeremiah should be serving at the temple. He's born into the priesthood. Why is it that he's out on the muddy banks of the Jordan proclaiming a message of repentance? Because he's rejected the temple. He says that he has thoroughly cleansed this threshing floor. What does that mean when, when, when John the Baptist says that? He's speaking of the threshing floor of Aravna, which is where the temple mount was built. He's, he's pronouncing judgment against the temple. The Qumran community is. Josephus announces what's happening in there. And, none the, and no different, Jesus walks in the temple and what does he do? He questions their authority and he pronounces his by his actions. So that is what we're walking into. And so they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Pretty valid question. You've just broke a bunch of things and accepted praise and worship and, and as the messianic fulfillment of the son of David. By what authority are you doing these things? Well, Jesus, and as, as he did many times, he, he asked them a question. He says, I'll tell you that, okay. Gladly, I'm paraphrasing a little here. But first tell me this, John the Baptist, baptism. Is it of God or is it of men? Remember who I shared John the Baptist is? He's rejected the temple. If they affirm him, they're affirming his pronunciation of judgment against them. And if they denounce him, they fear the people because the people held John as a prophet. So they say, we're not gonna, we can't answer you that. Is it that they didn't know the answer? No, they knew the answer. The answer was, no, he's not of God, but they fear the people. So Jesus is using this, this tumultuous individual. He knows what they're going to do. He knows that they're not going to answer. He knows that they can't. That's the reason he brings up the character of John the Baptist. And so they say, we can't answer you that. Well, sure you can, you just choose not to. So he says, okay, well, I'm not gonna answer you either. But let me tell you a story. And that's when Jesus is answering them. You don't, you don't understand it in the moment. They didn't understand it in the moment. And he begins to tell a parable. Now a parable in the Hebrew means a lemma shawl. It means to make plain or make simple. Many have taught that parables were used to confuse people. Parables were not, but Jesus did use parables 
to confuse people, to confound the wise and make plain to the simple. But uh, parables were, were widely used in the first century only among Pharisees, surprisingly. So when Jesus is sharing a parable, more than likely they're looking for some simple explanation. If you're going to talk to farmers, you're gonna talk about sowing and reaping. Limeshaw, to make plain, to make simple. If you're gonna talk about, uh, to fishermen, you're probably gonna talk about casting the dragnet. You see this as Jesus also uses them to make plain to the simple. So they must have been shocked when he took these parables so simple and confounded them with them. His brilliant use of parables. Now, I find it interesting that he is the word. Here they are trying to catch him in his words. He is the word. And in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the, was, the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who do you think you are and how is it that you think you're going to confound him? He is the word. So he tells a story, a story that theologian Craig Evans says is the most important parable in all of the Bible. And many theologians would agree with that. The parable of the wicked vine dressers. In this message today, I wanna to talk about relentless mercy and let's begin reading chapter 12, verse one, as we dig into this parable. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug a pit for it, its wine press and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went, to a, went on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his portion of the crop. So first of all, we see here that there is a vineyard that's presented in this parable. A vineyard that represents Israel. A vineyard that represents God's people. And today we can be confident in knowing that Jesus is the fulfillment of this and that when we read this passage, we can look at ourselves in light of the vineyard because we've been given things and responsibilities as well. So the vineyard is made. The, the master has made all provisions. There's nothing wrong with the vineyard. He's built a, a wall around it. He's put a watchtower there to watch out for vermin and pests that might come and eat from the vine or thieves that might break in and steal. He's removed the field stones from the field. It's hard, tedious labor. He's broke up the fallow ground and then he's sowed. And, and now this vineyard is here. It's beautiful. It's perfect. The vineyard owner has created it. There's nothing wrong with the vineyard. Let's move on in verse three. But those tenants seized his slave, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So we sent another slave to them again. This one they struck on the head and treated outrageously. He sent another and that one they killed. This happened to many others, some of whom were beaten, others killed. He had one left, his one dear son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw his body out of the vineyard. What then will the vineyard owner do? Who 
are these messengers. We know what the vineyard is. These messengers have been sent. And in this passage, Jesus begins to paint almost this ridiculous picture. For what vineyard owner sending the first slave to collect from the vineyard and having him beaten, sent out, wouldn't draw the line there. Maybe send one other more honorable um, servant to go and collect. But this gets to the point of what seems to be ridiculous. One is beaten. We see the escalation of it. At first one is, is, is thrown out, beaten. And the next one, it talks about this substantial head injury. It sees the need to designate that there is this head injury, which means that it must have been pretty serious. So one beaten, one's received a head injury, and then one's killed. And then it says, and then he sent many, many others. Some were beaten, some were killed. Christ takes this parable to the point of ridiculousness. To the point where when it's time to answer, you see how quickly these authorities and chief priests answer him. Because it's come to the point where it's obvious that this is wrong. It's not right. What's happening here? These, these vineyard keepers should pay their due to the vineyard owner. Many others were killed. How many others? Well, if you want to know how many others, read the Old Testament. It's Zacharias that the prophet who is killed inside the temple because he was sent with a message to God's people and they rejected him and he was murdered in the temple. Micah was punched in the face and they said, who, prof- who hit you, prophet? As they mocked him. Isaiah, according to church history, um, was sawn in two and some believe that's who Hebrews is talking about when it's talking about those who were sawn in two for the glory of God. Jeremiah is thrown into prison and his feet sinks in the mire. Later, he's stoned to death. At what point with you as the vineyard owner, would you stop and say, enough's enough? Two would be enough. One would be enough. Messenger come to collect. But he takes it to this place of what seems to be reckless. Now I speak as a man today. And using God and reckless in the same sentence, um, I I would be leery to do. But I speak as a man in my own human terms, looking at a situation like this, I would look at a vineyard owner and say, what are you doing? You send another one and another one? Why? Because God is full of mercy and grace and compassion for his lost because he sends another and he sends another and he sends another. We reject and he sends another. We reject and he sends another. There's a, this uh, song that came out that talks about the overwhelming, reckless love of God. And, and there were some people that had an issue with that. And I, and I understand why. I wouldn't call God reckless in any way, but I would say as a human looking at that scenario, it seems a little Ridiculous that he would send another after so many have been beaten. And who would send their son? That takes the cake. We've got head injuries. We've got deaths. We've got people beaten. And your son is being sent into harm's way. Your beloved son, um, as one of the other gospels um, highlights, 
He's going to send his beloved son to the vineyard. Surely they'll respect him. He's the heir. He speaks for me. I'll send my dear son, my beloved son. In our understanding, this seems irrational. From the birth to the time of his execution, Christ's life was not safe among human beings. R.C. Sproul says it this way, no one wants to hear, but our basic fallen nature is such that we are simply, it's not such that we are simply indifferent to God, beloved, we hate God. He is our mortal enemy and fallen human beings will stop at nothing to rid themselves of the sovereignty of their creator. Don't believe this attitude of tolerance and indifference in the world that says they have towards God. There is such a hostility in the human that if God's life were made vulnerable to the human, to human beings, he would be destroyed. And he ends by saying this, and I'm not speaking theoretically because it happened. When I first read that quote, it kind of offended me a little bit. But then at the end, seeing it's not theoretical here. That's the very message of the gospel that he sins again and again. It's the thing that first Peter says that it's the things that angels long to look into. It gives this imagery of angels just peering into the redemption of man. That he would give his own life as a ransom. And it does seem a little ridiculous and unheard of that the God of creation being slighted time and time and time again would send another servant and another servant and another servant to the point, I'll send my only son. And we see this, this tension with Christ on earth as they are taken back by him. And in this scenario is no different. By what authority do you do these things? Who do you think you are? You know, he's talking to, if you look at that passage of scripture, he's talking to the chief priests, the experts in the law and the elders, not Pharisees, not Sadducees. These are the three people groups that have been given control of Israel and the dissemination of the Torah. The chief priests, they're offering sacrifice in, in, the, in the temple. The experts of the law, able to dissect scripture and guide them along. These are the ones that have been entrusted with the vineyard. They are the vineyard keepers in this temple system. They're questioning Jesus's authority. Why? Because they're the authority in that region. So therefore, this is our authority. This is our realm. Who are you coming in here and doing what you're doing? Jesus, through this parable, tells them who he is. You've killed the prophets. You've stoned them. You've sawn them in two. You've thrown them out of the city. You've mocked them. I'll send my dear son, my beloved son, to the vineyard to collect. They see that he's the heir to the throne. Therefore, they kill him and throw him out. So if he's the heir to the throne, then he's the authority, not them. And rightfully so, they're clamoring, trying to figure out who is he? Their authority is being questioned by his very actions. John 15 verse 18 says this, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me first. 
because the message of the gospel is sometimes offensive. Because it confronts us in our sin, in our depravity. And he's coming to look for fruit at the vineyard. This day he finds none. And so they take him and see he's the heir. This, 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 this back and forth, the, the control of power. Who, who is in power here? Who's in authority here? Is it you or is it us? Because we've been given the authority here over the law over the temple and elders for practical application for the people. All of it is summed up in those three people groups. But Jesus is confronting them on all of them. We, we move, um, there's, there's a scripture in Matthew. Um, let me continue in Mark actually. I'll, I'll end that in verse, uh, starting in verse nine and we'll, we'll end this parable. What then? Will the owner of the vineyard do? This is a question from Jesus to them. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, if you were asked that question that day and he painted this scenario for you of these wicked vine dressers who had killed uh, visitor after visitor, emissary after emissary, servant after servant, prophets, kings, judges. What's your answer? Oh, very quickly, I know the answer to that. These guys don't deserve to live. They've hurt others. They've killed others. They've thrown him out. They've killed his only son. And they threw his body out of, out of the vineyard like a limp dish rag, like he's worth nothing. That's exactly what they do. What will they do? They answer, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now we see in Matthew, let me read you uh, Matthew chapter 21, verse 41, the same historical passage, um, just a different um, viewpoint on it from Matthew. They said to him, he will utterly destroy. They didn't just say he will destroy. They were ready to answer. Like pick me, I know the answer to this one. These guys did bad, they deserve judgment. I got the answer. He will utterly destroy those evil men. Then he will lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his portion of the harvest. Sounds reasonable. But with their own words, they've condemned themselves. And somewhere in this interaction, I don't know exactly where it happens. Maybe as the words are coming out of their mouth, they realize what they've just done. They've pronounced the judgment on themselves because he has come after prophet, after prophet, after prophet, after judge, after king. Now the beloved son has shown up in the vineyard and he's there to collect. You know what he's saying? He's answering their question. By what authority do you do these things? He's done it in this elaborate parable. He's telling them, I am the son of the vineyard owner. I am the son of the living God and I've come to collect. But there's no fruit on this vine corruption that had taken place. So much so in the temple um, that Baba bin Buta, um, a, a rabbi, an extra biblical literature, it shows us that he goes into the temple at one point and it's barren of animal sacrifice. And when you understand what's happening at this time, they had jacked up the prices of sacrifices so high that common man could not afford them. 
So he goes in the temple and he sees a barren of animal sacrifice and he buys 3,000 animals for the people to sacrifice. This is the kind of corruption that they're standing in the way between fallen man and holy God. They're being obstructionary. The very thing the temple was caused to do was to bring people in through the sacrificial system to acknowledge their guilt and that God is holy and we are not. He has come to collect. And Jesus is there in the vineyard and the fruit on their vines is corruption and wickedness. And Jesus announces who he is. They realize they've just condemned themselves. What I love is we talked about this is asking of what authority he did this thing is on the back of the, of the triumphal entry. And in one, Psalms 118, we see that he's, they're, they're quoting Psalms 118, Hosanna in the highest, Lord save us. That the very thing that they have an issue with him about, him coming into town and not rebuking his disciples, Jesus ends back at that same scripture. And he shares this, Psalms 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is being said in the vicinity of the temple. This is the temple. It's being said right in that area. He's speaking in architectural terms. He's speaking in building terms here. What chief cornerstone? Jesus later says that that I'll destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Speaking of his body, earlier he looks out over Jerusalem and weeps because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he weeps because he sees the further fall in 70 AD of the temple. Not one stone, he says, will be left upon another. Now he's saying he is the chief cornerstone. It's not a coincidence. Their authority established right there at the temple, right there at that vineyard. Jesus is saying, I've always been the cornerstone. I am the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the earth. Before this this building was even erected, I am the chief cornerstone. The very thing that you're you're trying to build on is built on me. I am the son of the vineyard owner. I am the heir, apparent. And what do they do? They fulfill the exact same thing that he said they would. They take him they beat him, they mock him. They push a hateful crown of thorns upon his head. They beat him and they throw him out and discard him like he's trash. What is this love of God that the angels desire to look into? What is this love that he has for us that he sends person after person after person to appeal to us, to, to, to win our hearts? but our hearts are prone to wander. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so this morning, as we read this passage, we, we look at the relentless mercy of God that even looks to be too much. I don't have that kind of mercy and grace towards someone who, who hurts me or my family, but this love and mercy that even the angels desire to look into. The religious leaders rebuke him and tell him to silence his disciples. What does Jesus say after that? This is the triumphal entry. 
if I should be silent, these stones would cry out. What stones? The temple stones, the cornerstones, the, the, the very thing that has all been built upon. It's him. It's always been him. It's the reason we see the success that we see at Team Challenge. And in this moment, we see a shifting in power, a transfer of power from a temple system, which won't exist in, in, in many more years in 70 AD will be destroyed and there will never be temple sacrifice offered, offered again. The Le- Levitical order, we can't even track the Levitical order anymore. Who, who, who are truly Levites, who could even serve in the temple. This thing changes and there's a, there's a shift in power from the temple authorities, the chief priests, the experts in the law, the elders, to a ragtag group of disciples from the Galilee. This day, it will be taken from you and given to another. And we see Peter step onto the Temple Mount steps and on the day of Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit preaches the gospel and thousands are set free. This, what is this happening at the temple? There's this, there's this collision course with the authority of what they think they hold and who the true authority is here. He pronounces it. And then he pours his spirit out into little mishkans, little temples. For you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You're bought with the price. We offer sacrifices from our temple. We, we share with others from that temple. You see, this is why we see the success we see in our program, because we're built on something other than our own wisdom, something other than our creativity, something other, something that will stand the test of time, something that will never be shaken. And that is the cornerstone Christ Jesus we've been erected upon top of that cornerstone and we stand firm because of him not because of us that's the reason we see drug addicts become ministers of the gospel that's the reason we see the fruit in the vineyard that we see it's only because of him the band come up now and I want to say a prayer over you guys and we're gonna sing one more song in response to what God has been speaking this morning. So can we, can we bow our heads and God, we just love you. God, first of all, we just confess a heart that's prone to wander. It's prone to get angry and frustrated and, and step outside of, of, of your law and your, and your spirit. God, we realize that there is something so sacred here that that we are built upon the cornerstone that is unshakable. God, we don't look at these chief priests and elders and experts in the law and say, look at these guys and how bad they messed up. We look in the mirror because we're all human. We've all fallen in short of the glory of God. We look at our own hearts, God, and we pray you shine a light on it. During this next song, God, would you speak directly to us as we respond to you. Can we stand with this closing song and, and, and uh, focus on him and, and what he's doing in our lives and what he wants to do? Can't go back to the beginning. 
can't control what tomorrow will bring but I know here in the middle is the place where you promise to be I'm not enough unless you come will you meet me here again cause all I want is all you are will you meet me here again as I walk now through the valley let your love rise above every fear like the sun shaping the shadows in my weakness your glory appears I'm not enough unless you come. Will you meet me here again? Cause all I want is all you
Give him a hand this morning and the Teen Challenge folks that are here. Sharing stories of redemption is not easy, and God's grace is just overwhelming to me. So thank you, Lauren and Josh and Cody, guys, for sharing. Yara, for sharing and leading us in worship. We're super grateful. A couple of things I just want to remind you of. Uh, we are taking a love offering today. Every dollar that we take will go directly to these folks. They're just going to shove it in an envelope and send it home with them. So in our back in our offering box... We encourage you to do that. We also encourage you to stop by and pick up a treasure. There's books. Joshua's actually written a couple of books. I've read one of them. I, uh, for sure, the second one to get my hands on, but they're great. We encourage you to go by and pick one of those up. There's hats and all kinds of stuff. Those guys labor over those things. All that money goes back to the Cheen Challenge. So if your kids want something to hang on their wall, buy them too. Um, we'd love for you to have that. We also have a food truck that's out there doing community lunch. So if some of the guys that are here want to hang out and help us roll the tables out, we're going to move some chairs, just the ones in the back there, and roll some chairs and tables out and set up. And all that's free. So all you've got to do is go out there and get a hot dog and a drink and chips and all those kind of things and, and hang out and spend some time as a community. Let's have one other great announcement, and that is Chase and Katie Allman are here for the first time. We've been praying for them like crazy. They're back. We're celebrating God's incredible goodness and faithfulness. So, Chase and Katie, we love you all like crazy. It's super exciting to have you in worship with us after these months. So, we're blessed. But this is the God that we serve. He is overwhelmingly miraculous, constantly moving and holding all things together. He is the owner of the vineyard. He has sent his son to give us full, true, and abundant life. And today, at any point in time, if you're feeling lost, if you're feeling drift, like you're drifting, if you're feeling like you have no center, I can promise you, the answer is Jesus. He's the answer to all things, but he has called you into a relationship with him. So don't leave this place today if you feel like God is calling your name. Uh, come meet with us and let us tell you about the Savior that redeemed us. Visit with these folks. They'd love to tell you their stories. But as we go from this time to celebrate a time as community, we take those truths. God is 
incredibly and endlessly merciful. That he has offered his son to give us both abundant life here on earth and the promise of eternal life that's come. Seize it. It's his gift to you. Go in peace.